Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where Did the Road Go is brought to you in part by our Patreons. And this month, it's being brought to you in particular by Allison Cook. Eric Hervin, Lindsay Marie Trebet, and Super Inframan. Thank you all so very much, and now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And I welcome back for the third time uh, for the same book, uh, Mr. Brent Rains. Hello, Brent. Hey, Soraya. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the third time is the charm, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there was so much stuff in this book. And I mean, we've gone off too on some of your own stuff. Uh, the book we're talking about is John A. Keel, The Man, the Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries, and uh, has a foreword by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. It's self, self-published, right? Mm-hmm, yes. And uh, it's, there's so much stuff in this book. I mean, there's just, just amazing me. I, we, we had talked last time about uh, stuff coming from the left side, and I realized that anything that's ever happened to me, like, that I can think of, while I was like half asleep or whatever, is always when I'm laying on my right side, which means it's my left ear hearing them. Okay. And yeah. it's not something I really thought about. And I was like, huh, maybe it is the left side more often than not. Um, I had laid down, was it after the last time we talked for your magazine or something? I wasn't even going to sleep. I just laid down. I rolled over on my right side and immediately felt something sit down on the bed with me and i was not in the mood <laughs> i was like stop and then i rolled over and there was nothing there i just had to make sure it wasn't a cat or something but it felt heavy and i rolled back on my right side and again something fe- pushed down on the bed and i was like all right fine and i rolled on my left side and it didn't do it again hmm. well I-, I can't guarantee that it was related to brain hemispheres but you know it's a it's a pattern that emerged when i was uh studying these things and uh so i thought it would be uh you know what would really be interesting is to um have evidence of what researchers you know which is a very expensive thing to to do but to have brain scans of experiences when they're recalling experiences or perhaps when they're involved in uh, a meditation where they believe they're interacting with uh some sort of interactive intelligence you know and uh, be it et or uh, ghost or, or whatever the frame of reference may be and uh, see what parts of the brain are, are being activated and that would be certainly, uh, you know and, and and of course my interest uh, I was really uh, quite excited when I found out that there are a couple of doctors who are studying this and, and doing MRIs of uh, of 
brains of experiencers and finding that there may be certain areas that are um, showing a kind of a structural uh, change as opposed to non-experiencers. And right. that, is supposed to, that is supposed to come out in a journal article eventually. So uh, that would be uh, uh, Christopher Kidd Green, uh, who studied, you know, who was with the CIA back in the 70s and uh, was uh, kept in touch, was a handler for some of the psychics and, and researchers working for Stanford Research Institute at the time. And and uh, he had observed things that convinced him that he, you know, even to this day, he's continuing the research on his own. And uh, uh, with a, a Gary Nolan, who works in Nolan Lab out at uh, Stanford, mm-hmm. And he's been working with him for a few years, and I was in touch with him and asked him a few questions, and, and uh, Gary Nolan has done a few interviews, and, uh, you know, it's quite an interesting thing to, um, you know, it's one thing, you know, we have people giving us verbal, oral testimony, but then if we could actually get something uh, hard evidence when they're telling this testimony, we could actually see things going on in the in the, in the human brain. Yeah. Um, that would be fascinating. Um, so when, yeah, so when they're reliving the experience under hypnosis uh, or just, you know, and just focusing on it and telling the, the experience and reliving it uh, just in, you know, conversation. Um, and I know there was a, a gentleman, John Salter, um, who had several experiences, alien abduction contact, and he uh, claimed that whenever he, you know, st- was thinking about his experiences, uh, this red dot would appear on his neck that uh, had first appeared from one of these experiences that he had. Mm. And I've heard a similar story from others, and I thought, you know, uh, something's going on when they're reliving that, and it's coming out as some kind of a stigmatic or stigmata yeah. type thing, or there's something going on in the brain that would be interesting to, you know, to follow that up. But of course, um, like I said, I was mentioning it to uh, uh, some people in the mental health field one time, and they said, well, how much money you got in your pocket, Brent? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a, that's something most people cannot afford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, John, John Keel also talked about the time and day that these things are more likely to happen. Well, yeah, he... Uh, you know, when he right at the very beginning, there was so much activity back in '66 and '67 that he he began to uh, to see if there was some sort of unique patterns to the activity. And one of them he noticed right off was uh, most of the sightings were on Wednesdays. And he thought, well, it shouldn't be on Wednesdays; it should be more on the weekends or something when more people would be out and about. You know? Yeah. And and uh, and then uh, you know he's mentioned i think it was uh maybe 11 o'clock but also 3 a.m is something he had noticed and that's something that valley and and others have talked about a lot of the contacts the being reported around 3 a.m and uh and also that's that's there's a number of things that happen around that hour um there's you know the pre-dawn is like the energy in the atmosphere the sun is starting to it's going to start coming around and and there's an electrical electromagnetic shift and keel wrote about this in one of his uh, saga magazine articles and talked about how he uh 
put a UFO detector up in Ivan Sanderson's attic there in New Jersey one time. Ivan mm-hmm. Sanderson being a noted zoologist who was a good friend of his and also into UFOs and, and Bigfoot and all. And, uh, and it kept going off around three o'clock in the morning. And, uh, Keel noticed, you know, mentioned about the, uh, you know, like three to 4 AM in the morning. Uh, if you're in a jungle somewhere, there's this eerie silence that, that happens about that hour. And, uh, and there was, a Psychologists have talked about a thing called the 3 a.m. wow, where people just suddenly wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and they, they have this idea and they got to get up and write it down or something. Um, mm. And uh, and I read uh, Rick Strassman and DMT, The Spirit Molecule, where at 3 a.m. Uh, there's uh, uh, melatonin in the pineal gland uh, is released. And uh, so I thought, you know, these are all kind of interesting. There's also something someone told me recently about the Lakota Indians. Uh, 3 a.m. was a uh, considered a prayer time. So huh. uh, I don't know. <laughs> 3 a.m. and, and Wednesday is a good time to be on the alert, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, and, of course, window areas where activity is, <laughs> is high and, and recurrent over the years, uh, over the centuries sometimes, and certain geographical locations and uh keel emphasized that a lot of these windows were around geomagnetic anomalies and he even encouraged people uh to uh get uh, some of these maps that the u.s geological survey had that showed these places in their own states back in the 50s and 60s they were having aircraft that were flying over uh the whole country and and mapping out these these sites and uh, there was a John Burke who uh, was working with Nancy uh, Talbert, the crop circle lady up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they were over in England. And uh, he was going to, uh, he had all this stuff to detect magnetic fields, this equipment, this very expensive equipment. And, uh, and he was to do it at the crop circles, but he also noticed that uh, many of the ancient sites over there um, you know, the sacred ground was often right right where there was a geomagnetic anomaly. And he thought, how interesting. They didn't have these instruments like he did to detect this, but something in them was sensitive. They were somehow aware that this place was a little different. And, uh, and then he went across the United States documenting different sacred sites, uh, the Native Americans and down into Central America, and found again and again that... Uh, um, there was this geomagnetic pattern. In fact, I, my wife and I went out back, I think, around 2007 to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. He said one of the most powerful ones that he had found here in the uh, United States was out there near Albuquerque. It was a 17-mile-long mesa uh, composed of volcanic rock. And uh, a lot of these rocks, there were thousands of them that had these Indian artwork on them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and he went there, and uh, he detected this these energy fields. One time he got in his car because it was moving down the mesa, and he tried to keep up with it to see you know where it was going. Oh. And then he and then he talked to one of the uh, tour guides there, and she came out to talk with him, and you know she'd found out what he was doing. He said she said that uh, you know for for a number of years I've heard these people talking about how they'd go up among the rocks and 
they would feel the energy, you know. And she said, I always thought they were just kind of new agey, but you're telling me there might actually be something to it. (laughs) (laughs) I I have no no doubt that some people are more sensitive to this stuff than others, just like more people are more sensitive to electromagnetic fields. I mean, there are some people who can't even live, like, in populated areas because all the uh, EM fields make them physically sick. Right, and it wasn't too long ago, I guess about 93, that we actually confirmed, a lot of researchers suspected that that we have, uh, you know, the um, magnetic deposits in our brains. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's <clears throat> been long suspected, and it's finally been proven. And I know my friend, uh, Dr. Greg Little, a Memphis psychologist who's been studying the, the whole UFO thing, and um, also read a lot of uh, Keel's material, even talked with him on the phone one time, and and he believes that um, these probably magnetic deposits uh, may well be a little more concentrated in, in some of these experiences. Mm, that would make sense. But uh, so far, you know, that hasn't been... It gets back to the cost of research again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder if that has any connection to implants, too. I mean, maybe the implants are natural things that people who, you know, have that type of a thing going on draw this stuff in, and then they think it was put in them because they never looked for it before. Well, I know that uh, uh, the late uh, uh, Nick Ryder up in uh, near Toledo, Ohio, um, I know he worked in a lab up there uh, where he actually had access to an electron microscope and such. And he was... Uh, he was back in, mm, I guess, the 80s and into the 90s. He was uh, he started this this thing where he got these powerful magnets and he would find experiences to test them out and see if they um, had any reaction to them. But he was mainly uh, seeing if they had implants. Mm. And he couldn't really validate that they had implants, but he noticed that a lot of them seemed to have a... Uh, a sensitivity to the magnets, yeah. And uh, so he even sent me a a um, a donut magnet that I think is about a thousand gauze, and I've tried that on a few people um, who were experiencers, and uh, uh, some of it's just through the charts. You know, they have these visualizations, they have the sensation that something's pulling, and and uh, and I noticed was seemed like a number of reports that he posted in a book that he wrote uh there was a concentration seemed that was more uh, on one side of the brain again you know that would kind of go along with this uh, hemisphere thing too hmm. but you know again uh it's it's not proven it's, right, <laughs> but it's, right. it's interesting yeah it's it's just it's ideas to throw around and uh who knows if they ever come to something um so uh, one of the things you talk about here, and I've never really dealt with anything uh, too much about mirrors. Uh, early on in the book, you talk about experiments with mirrors and stuff. Yeah, that was something that Dr. Raymond Moody, Moody had uh, had gotten into uh, a few years back. And he was, of course, best known for his uh, book back in the mid-70s uh, on near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was... Uh, he also got interested in what they call the psychomantium, and it's where you have a, a mirror 
in a darkened room and you have a light behind you and you, you look into the mirror. And uh, my friend, Dr. Greg Little, went to one of his workshops where he spent the day uh, learning how, you know, uh, Dr. Moody set up, arranged his psychomantium, his mirror experiments. And then he went home and uh, he created one of his own. And, and you know, he Greg believed that... Uh, Besides the dead coming through the mirror to people, that probably this would be a way, although he said he didn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, recommend this, but that uh, some of these graves or whatever, the aliens could actually do the same thing. And uh, he said that he would see like a, uh, a cave and he would hear like, like uh, uh, what was it, footsteps or like raindrops, like, you know, like dripping water or something. And he said, uh, after, you know, I started getting these EVPs, he wondered, you know, he could hear this. And he said he wondered now if he, uh, if this was a real sound or if he could have recorded it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we, you know, I took a Native American uh, medicine worker, friend of ours, over there to his house. And she, I sat in front of it. I didn't really have any experience, but she said that she, uh, she saw like the spirit of a little girl in the mirror and uh, and of course Joan Rivers uh, went to uh, Dr. Moody's uh, place he had down here in Alabama uh, where he did these uh, psychomantium experiments and and uh, she claimed that uh, her late husband came through the mirror and actually physically touched her, hugged her and so so some of these people, it's pretty profound experience. So what exactly is the psychomantium? It's it's simply a, a mirror in a darkened room where, you know, uh, you know this, Dr. Moody was studying about how in ancient times uh, people would uh, uh, see things in, in reflective surfaces. It might be in a pool of water or it might be some reflective object uh, a mirror or something else and uh they believed that they could see spirits in this so he decided to you know take all this information and create um a uh experiment so, you know where he could try to recreate the, the the conditions that uh were in these ancient descriptions and uh recreate the effect which he's he was successful in achieving hmm. So then the question is just what's happening when that effect takes place. Yeah, yeah. Again, it would be nice to have MRIs going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and other things, too. Um, you know, somebody wrote Greg and told him that uh, he tried, you know, um, a like a scrying mirror. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he did this. He described how he had uh, used the image of um, Alistair Crowley's lamb. That being that he drew that looks very much uh, like, like a, a gray, yeah, and claimed that there were, I believe, three that he saw suddenly appear in this mirror looking at him, which I think kind of freaked the guy out. And of course, this is the sort of thing that Greg had earlier predicted uh, people could probably experience if they tried that, although he uh, he recommended that they be cautious and, you know, it wasn't for everybody to, to try. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, 
I've also heard of people making mirror boxes, like uh, taking the same size mirrors and creating a box. And apparently they start emitting noises, but I don't know if there's anything really to that. Well, I tried it. Nothing happened for me. But, you know, I know people who have tried some things that worked for me that didn't work for them. So, I mean, everybody has, um, you know, potentially, I guess, some knack or sensitivity to one thing that someone else may not. So I, I won't yeah. dismiss it, you know, but I've heard of that too. Um, one of the things you cover in the book is uh, various, because, you know, Keel is known for Mothman in particular, um, various winged monsters. And you, you talk about a bunch that happen inside people's houses that seem to just be one-off things. Yeah, there was a, um, a family here in, in Tennessee and uh, uh, the mother had described, you know, she had uh, three children. When this happened, they were all young, and it was in the winter time. And the husband was at work, wouldn't you know it? <laughs> and uh, she, uh, the kids came down from upstairs, all excited. They, you know, telling about something laying on the floor up there. And she went up, and uh, it was this. Uh, winged creature with kind of like bug type eyes you know that had all these little like a fly's eyes has all these little um mini lenses or whatever you want to call it in there and it uh she just sat there and looked at it for a while and then she decided that it was just a, uh, you know she needed to do something um she didn't know what to do. She was getting kind of scared, so she decided to take the kids outside, even though it was uh, February, I think, and it was very, very cold. Mm -hmm. And uh, they stood out there a while in the cold on the porch, and then she decided, well, you know, this is crazy. Uh, so she went back in, went back upstairs, and at this point it was gone. Hmm. Um, and I know, you know, there was an a case that uh, Andy Colvin had come across that uh, he's a he's from West Virginia originally and has written quite a bit on on these things and uh, presented a lot of represented a lot of Keel's uh, material in some books and uh, he had a witness claim that they woke up in the night and there was uh, one of these wing creatures hanging upside down like a bat over him and uh and there was a case around um, that a Russian researcher had had written about over in in uh, that part of the world that involved a uh, a winged creature that got under a bed and the people were poking uh, broomsticks or whatever at it and they they felt like they killed it and they dragged it out and then they were afraid maybe it was some sort of uh, exotic creature uh, you know the belonged to the government or something so they they left it out in the ditch outside the house and then later it was gone <laughs> so i think that's a reasonable assumption <laughs> <laughs> you know and and uh toward the end there keel i i know he wrote me in early uh mm, 1990s sometime he that he was no longer interested in in the mothman there were so many reports of this type of thing all over the world that you know it wasn't as unique to him as it was when he first uh investigated the incidents in west virginia in in the yeah. 1960s well it seems like the the mothman stuff 
kind of piled up in one place at one time, and that's what kind of made it unique. Yeah, of course, he, he did uh, in his early, you know, when he first started writing about this, like his strange creatures from time and space and the Mothman prophecies, he he did mention like there was a, a case similar to the Mothman, the Owl Man, I think, over in, over in England. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 1963. And then there was uh, out in Washington State, there were flying man sightings back around 1948. So, But I don't um, think those had the uh, other phenomena accompanying it like like the the west virginia stuff did well of course you know we they you know the information on on uh, a lot of those stories came from newspaper accounts so all we had was the the sighting you know it's like a lot of ufo reports we, you wonder if if some of those early cases had been pursued further and documented like keel did or valley uh if uh, we'd have uh, more information. I mean, all we have is, yeah. and that's the way some of the investigators, uh, like from MUFON and such, and NICAP and APRO investigated things. They were only interested in what happened to you uh, in regards to this single sighting and, and never really going into the background and, and, and uh, no telling what kind of information uh, would have been collected had that been a routine or more of a routine process with everybody. Yeah. That's true. But, uh, yeah, he also had, uh, oh, um, I think around Brooklyn and such, over around New York City, they were back in the late 1800s, reports of flying men over there, too. But oh, again, yeah. you know, what what could we have found out if, if somebody had gone over there, you know, maybe Charles Fort and <laughs> interviewed these people. <laughs> Say, what are the strange things that happened to you? You know, we might have found some of these curious patterns, poltergeists and MIB type things and such. Uh, uh, no, it's certainly possible, yeah. I mean, it's like people researching Bigfoot. They don't ask them about, hey, have there been any weird lights or anything like that? They're just interested in the Bigfoot aspect of it. Right, and if they hear about it, you know, they, they tend to say, well, uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, they're just, they ignore it because they're just there to collect the Bigfoot uh, testimony. Yeah. Uh, just as a lot of UFOologists are there to collect the uh, the UFO yeah. right. story. You know? Yeah, if, you, if we keep segregating this stuff out, we don't see the full picture. Yeah, and Keel had written one time that, you know, he felt like ufology should be a branch of parapsychology uh, because there was so much overlap. And uh, I know my friend, Dr. Berthold Schwartz, who was a psychiatrist and a parapsychologist for years. And when Keel found out that he had written an article for a medical journal back in 1968 on three UFO cases and mentioned in one there was a poltergeist thing. And this was actually going to be Dr. Schwartz's sworn song, swan song, you know, on the, the whole UFO issue. And he was going to get back to parapsychology and John Keel got a hold of him and, and you know, wrote him a letter and said, uh, you know, um, we really need people like you uh, helping us out in the UFO field because you're versed in the in the parapsychological aspects and there's a lot of it in this data. And uh, so he did. He later wrote, uh, published, he had articles in Flying Saucer Review and then a lot of them he put in in a book around 1983, uh, which was a two-volume book over 500 pages called ufo dynamics and he had a lot of the ufo paranormal things in there and uh 
even had an article I wrote for the Flying Saucer Review on a case up in Maine that he also came up to follow up on and investigate. And uh, and I talked, you know, I was talking to Keel one time, and he said, "Yeah, that was one of the better books in the UFO field." And as usual, the 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 UFO buffs ignored it. <laughs> right, right. Um, he was often very critical of the the UFO community, the mainstream community, and then uh, kind of ruffled their feathers more than more than a, a time or two. <laughs> but uh, he was also, you know. I mean, I know they saw him as being like what we'd call today woo-woo, you know. He was involved in all this unusual-sounding stuff. But he was also um, touched upon in a lot of areas that were very practical and that they they needed to know about, uh, like the Barham Cloud experiments that often got mistaken for UFO phenomena and how it's hard to judge um, something that's, up in the sky that you don't have a frame of reference you know it's not in front of a tree or something else and how you can misjudge something like a barum cloud display that uh, uh, it could be you know it's up and way up in the atmosphere but you might think that it's actually just over the treetops from your perspective you know yeah and uh, he also talked about ball lightning um, some of the UFOs the, the round glowing spheres of light that shoot up from the ground could be some of that could be ball lightning you know because it lightning ball lightning doesn't always come just down from the cloud sometimes it it shoots up and uh so you know he was uh but of course when he wrote his articles a lot of that stuff was in his anomaly newsletter for researchers to read um but you know as far as what he wrote for the popular magazines most of those readers weren't interested in ball lightning and barum cloud experiments they wanted to hear about the the weird stuff so yeah <laughs> and yeah. keel was keel was quite interested in that too and more more than willing to oblige but uh well, i think it's anyway. important it's important to have that in from the the scientific aspect out there of what this is not Right, and uh, he was trying to be scientific, uh, I believe, and and uh, present. Uh, he said he tried to bring credibility to the field, but uh, it it was uh, for him. It felt like a losing battle a lot of times. Uh, I know that he tried to engage in correspondence with uh, James McDonnell, a well known a well known ET nuts and bolts mainstream proponent uh, who. Uh, who was a an astro well at, atmospheric astrophysicist uh, physicist or meteorologist type person and Keel and he got into an exchange and um, he finally I think the last letter he wrote back to Keel he says I just don't understand uh, what you're talking about you jump around from one subject to the next and of course Keel was trying his best to show him how things were interconnected potentially and and how much wider the perspective is that needs to be taken in all of this and and uh once again uh it just uh was uh very difficult for another person in the field to really take all that in i think now it would be easier we have more discussion on consciousness and and it you know anomalies of physics quantum physics and and the paranormal things uh it feels like in this daytime than back in the 60s and 70s when when keel was trying to uh 
to write about this and explain his his concepts and his ideas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely def- people are well, far more likely to accept these type of crossovers now than they were back then. There's no doubt about that. And this, you know, I I, uh, I was working for a couple of years, kind of, you know, as a with the people at the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research uh, into Extraterrestrial Extraordinary Experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, some really, really great people, PhDs and, you know, neuroscience and and uh, in religious studies or, or uh, psychology and so on, and, and very interested in all the the psychic and uh, and the physics, quantum physics and everything. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it was, seems like it was real hard to find these, much harder to find these people back in the day. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, they're, they're taking a look at all this stuff that, you know, Keel would, uh, was quite, quite intrigued with. And in fact, I'm writing a, uh, I already wrote one chapter for uh, their publication last year, the book they wrote, uh, Beyond UFOs, which had quite a number of the PhD people writing, uh, you know, articles with charts and graphs, you know, the statistical data that they've drawn from thousands of experiences they've been studying. And uh, and so I wrote one. A lot of it had a lot of Keel's comments and everything and, and what, uh, what he encountered. And so Ray Hernandez wanted me to write one for their next book, uh, just on Keel alone, and how he thought. In fact, he put me in touch with a uh, um, a doctor uh, Burks uh, out in L.A. who is a uh, medical ER medical doctor who has been had a number of experiences. He was uh, worked. He started out with Stephen Greer and went out to try to have sightings and contact mm. and uh, had a number of experiences and he was very interested in uh, in Keel and what he said. So I, Ray Hernandez had me and him get on Skype and have a little two-hour conversation back and forth uh, a few months back. And uh, he's got a concept he's going to write about called the virtual reality because he's experienced some of this himself in the field. He thinks some of these are, are projections similar to what you know Keel had said. Mm-hmm. And that it is a, a psychic interactive intelligence that, that, you know, is involved with. So it's, you know, really feels good to see, uh, you know, these really professional academic people uh, getting, you know, joining in the study of this. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Eric Ouellette? Um, no, no, I'm not. He, he's a parapsychologist who wrote a book called Illuminations. Uh, I had him on back in 2016, and he uh, the book is fantastic. It basically looks at the UFO phenomena as if it was a mass poltergeist experience. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that uh, one of the other times we talked. Yeah. I need to look that up. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's completely right, but I definitely think there's there's substance to what he's talking about. Yeah, I know that, you know, I mean, um, when I had my first book come out, uh, Visitors from His Hidden Realms, I, I sent a copy to uh, John Keel, and 
and uh, he wrote me a note back uh, thanking him, thanking me for the copy of the book. And he said I had taken the same route that he had. He felt uh, no big surprise, but you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know that um, he said, of course, we can't prove it. He says I don't, I can't prove that my ideas are one hundred percent. He said it was just. Uh, he said I just presented what I felt was the strongest possibility. Yeah, and uh, you know, so he wasn't. You know, he was. He wasn't just absolutely certain on every every point. Uh, well, wasn't, sure. You know, he 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 wrote that belief was the enemy. You know, we need to keep testing, testing it. Uh, and we shouldn't be afraid to throw ideas out there. I mean, if they're wrong, they're wrong. Who cares? But I mean, it, even if even a wrong idea might inspire somebody to get the right idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too many organizations that you know people have joined in the UFO field. That, they, you know, they they tell us to uh, follow their guidelines and to uh, just pretty much study what they want us to study, and and they don't allow for any uh, you know explorations into different other alternative theories. You know, it's like they're they're looking for uh, just the evidence of the craft and and their descriptions and you know mm-hmm. we've got thousands of those at this point <laughs> um and you know why not try to prove uh test out other theories alternative explanations and let people see what they come up with you know um just be kind of a like greg bishop has said uh, uh the organizations need to be just a a place to collect the data store it and make it available uh, online, say to uh, to others, so they can look at this and uh, and maybe draw their own uh, thoughts and conclusions, and do some field experiments, studies, interviews, um, and uh, and then not everybody has to be a, a a carbon copy of everybody else's you know procedure. Yeah, exactly. But I, but I know when I was. You know, a teenager, and and back in the '60s, um, I remember walking into NICAP's office in Washington D.C., and there was a gentleman there who was at his typewriter. Uh, said he was moonlighting, as I recall, and and he was rather busy. And he said, "We're not open." And uh, well, I just thought I'd try to make an introduction. You know, I told him who I was, and I was with APRO. And his only comment was, "Uh oh, well, you know, we don't get along well with APRO." And <laughs> and you know, it was like, "Get out of here, kid!" You know, you're, <laughs> you're bothering me. Wow. <laughs> you know, even though my father had uh, gone up and down all these streets trying to find this place and <laughs> out of his way, and. Um, and you know, and when I was with APRO, I mean, I I also joined, um, got on as a main director or representative for their magazine, uh, which included people like Brad Steiger and and August C. Roberts, people prominent in the field. But they weren't. But L- Carl Lorenzen of APRO wasn't too happy with my choice to join them, and she told me that as long as I was a member of Saucer Scoop magazine out of Florida that I couldn't be a field investigator for investigator for APRO, although, of course, they <laughs> would accept my, my money, you know. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I wanted to continue as a member, but I could not, you know, and I thought, this is crazy, you know. Yeah. It's all the infighting. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that. Well, and, that's what, uh, and that's what destroys and limits all these groups. Mm-hmm. Greg has written quite a bit about that. 
So, um, let's look at uh, one of these, see other things you've talked about in the book. Uh, calls from the dead. I had on a parapsychologist talking about this years ago, uh, Cal Cal Cooper, and uh, it's, it's something that uh, it, it almost sounds more like urban legend than anything else. <laughs> yeah, there was. Um you know, it really brought this out back in 1979. There was a book, Phone Calls from the Dead, that parapsychologist D. Scott Rogo, who was also one of the few parapsychologists who had actually studied the UFO aspect as well in all this, he even wrote a book with um, Ann Druffel out in California that they wrote a book together on uh, some of the abduction cases. And uh, Scott Rogo and um, a colleague of his, Raymond Boyless, a Bayless, Bayless, not Boyless, Bayless. <laughs> uh, they wrote this book, and it had quite a few cases that they had uh, documented. I think it was like a two-year study that they were engaged in. They, I think they had about 50, 50 cases, and then other people have been researching that aspect since. Keel, Keel was skeptical. He said, you know, uh, people have had experiences talking with the dead through phones and radios and and uh aliens and um he wrote in one of his books um uh yeah i think it was the haunted planet back in the 70s uh Mm. where he talked about some of the early contactees claimed they were getting messages through radios and um from aliens and and uh, there were some pretty puzzling cases and i think that started about 1952 is george hunt Williamson, and uh, what was interesting, he was a contactee, and then um, he, uh, I found him quoted in one of Harold Sherman's uh, books. Uh, Harold Sherman was uh, had an organization out in in Arkansas called uh, ESP Research Associates, and he was very mainstream parapsychology, paranormal, and uh, one of the top people in the field. And uh, he had a thing in one of his books about this, you know, because he was writing about EVP and how uh, there was a researcher named George Hunt Williamson who was studying this back in 1952. It didn't mention that he was also a UFO contactee. Mm. <laughs> but, but I thought, how interesting, you know, because I think uh, uh, D. Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayless had written that, as far as they could tell, it was in 1956 that, uh, you know, uh, Bayless had begun to be able to get EVPs here in the United States. But uh, it appears the contactees were getting it before before them. And of course, when I was working with the, you know, uh, some people, two of whom were uh, abductees, and uh, they were also doing some ghost hunting, and, and uh, we were using the, the ghost box getting EVPs. And, uh, and uh, I remember telling them at the time, that, uh, well, you could probably also turn this thing around, and besides talking with the dead, you could get aliens too. <laughs> and so they they did a couple sessions that I know of where they claimed they got some very unusual responses where this a voice that sounded different than the, the spirit voices they've been getting, more sort of mechanical, monotone sounding, and uh, mentioned implants and things like that. Mm. And... Uh, one person actually saw 
at that time, one of those nights when they were doing this, uh, they were outside and saw a, uh, a spherical object over this house where they were doing this session, just hovering there, and then it just sort of disintegrated. Um, wow. So anyway, uh, <laughs> and, and, you and, know. And, and that brings up the whole, how much of this is, is us manifesting some level of psi? Well, I guess that's, um, that's been brought up, you know, from uh, early on in the field. Um, there was a, I remember a German researcher when it was first starting up in Europe that uh, um, Hans Benzer, I think was his name, who uh, felt that a lot of these EVPs were projected from our, our minds. Um, it's hard to imagine, though, when you, when you hear these voices, interactive intelligent type voices that you know this could be from my mind but anyway uh, that's one of the theories you know <laughs> and um and of course um i think it was like i think i was talking with you and you you came up with the uh the express express that maybe these things they can read our minds and maybe they can manipulate and pull these things from our subconscious and, and they're actually taking this energy from us and uh doing something with it too you know? right yeah yeah that, that some of us have more natural psi energy and that some another intelligence could perhaps capitalize on that mm-hmm. yeah i mean it would it's uh it fits with some poltergeist cases because some you know uh the enfield one is the one i always point to where it seems like there was another entity involved there uh they were able to show that the person talking through her really did exist really did die there etc etc it's possible she picked up the information from the environment psychically but it's also possible that that spirit really was there and picked up on her psychic ability that was causing the poltergeist stuff and sort of hijacked it yeah and it's always interesting when when people get a um information on something that's going to happen is something very specific and then it and then it does, you know, mm-hmm. and that indicates that it's beyond the normal ability of that person that we know at a conscious level to be able to do. Um, but uh, by the way, did you get the um, the audio files I sent you? I we did. To- you, you sent me a few audio files. I was having trouble making any of them out, honestly. A couple of them were very clipped, too, which made it harder. Oh, okay. Well, I had, uh, yeah, I sent them, you know, to the messenger, and I wasn't sure how well they'd uh, they'd do. <laughs> yeah, they, I could barely make anything out on any of them. Uh, I, I oh, could hear, okay. I could hear the person asking the questions pretty well, and that was about it. Okay. Well, there was one there where, um, and this was on the one year anniversary of uh, John Keel's passing, and uh, so I asked, you know, the group. Uh, if we could uh, go ahead and try to contact Keel, and they were all for it. And he had asked his uh, contact if he could get John Keel to uh, say his name. And, and just within, you know, a couple of so seconds, the, this male voice says John Keel. And, and we've gotten that, uh, I'm going to say, about a half dozen times over the, over the years. And uh, a John Keel response. And then other, you know, interactive things kind of like that that we obtain. And then and sometimes we'd have 
like three recorders running and, and catch the same thing. Sometimes we'd catch something a little different on another recorder than we did the one that uh, maybe it had to do with how the recorders were positioned or something. Or And, and these, or, are, these were spirit box sessions, not just normal EVPs, right? Uh, yes, these were uh, these were spirit box that we were doing, hooked up to s- some stereo speakers. Uh, we had to, in the first sessions, we had to talk real loud in order to be heard over the the mm-hmm. uh, the speakers there. Um, and then we found, you know, that we could have a, something written on a piece of paper and uh, ask them to read what was on there, and 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 uh, a number of times we actually got the correct uh, wording. Oh, that's uh, interesting. So it was, you know, we had some puzzling, puzzling times there. Um, it seemed like we were definitely dealing with something intelligent, interactive. My primary, you know, concern was being able to prove to myself that it wasn't, uh, and it was hard to imagine because, you know, we'd do a session, say, around seven or eight, and then we'd do one around midnight that, that someone would be, uh, having a uh, a microphone planted in there and then transmitting over oh. a radio transmitter. You know, but I knew that people were going to ask, you know, uh, <laughs> about the circumstances. Could I prove it? So eventually I got one myself, and, and I've even picked up John Keel and other things here at my own home that's about 70-something miles from the, the, the house where we had initially had that session and other sessions. I mean, we can go... Um, multiple locations in a different state and, and still pick up uh, uh, some of these same same things. But doesn't, and, that, doesn't that kind of suggest that it's something at least connected to you, if not some level of your unconscious doing it? Well, there's a, there's a connection. I'm not sure because um, I really don't consider myself all that psychic or anything. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's... Um, there is a a connection, like, you know, uh, with Brett Oldham, who introduced us to the process, and he used Bishop, this being named Bishop, uh, as as his uh, guide in the process, his tech, and uh, lo and behold, whenever I ask, you know, when we're doing a session, what is who is there to help us? Bishop is one of the first people that comes through. In fact, I just did a session uh, two or three weeks ago. I hadn't done one in quite a while. And as soon as I switched on uh, the scanner on the the ghost box, the radio, um, the first second, the voice said Bishop. And, you know, um, and that's all it says is just Bishop, you know. <laughs> and we have like a, uh, I know there's a place as a Bishop, Bishop, uh, Ford Motors or something, a car dealership, but it's never like that. It's uh, just this voice that says Bishop, and then uh, uh, every once in a while there'll be something added to it, or his voice it'll be Bishop, and then it'll be another person that we also know, like Philip, whoever Philip is, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, connected with, you know, trying to get these other contacts to us, because we'll ask around that first session who's there to assist us. Hmm. And uh, so I don't know. It's 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 just you know, but um, I was really excited. Did this a lot for three or four years, and um, 
I was really, I got to where I thought I'm spending too much time on this. Uh, just the idea that there's an intelligent interactive responses that seems to go on, but it never was really telling me anything that, uh, uh, was furthering my knowledge of, uh, you know, who they are and what's, what it's all about. So only in special cases now do I, you know, every once in a while, well, we'll try it out, but, uh, it's not the same as having John Keel right here on the on the phone alive and talking <laughs> to him. <laughs> right. Um, what was the thing I wanted to... Oh, uh, Phantom Landscapes. You talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of like Jenny Randall's um, The Oz Effect. You know, it's like people having... They have experiences and suddenly the environment seems to change. Like uh, they may be in a uh, shopping mall and usually there's all kinds of cars and people around and suddenly it's just them and yeah and uh these entities uh, in one case the the you know these mib types the men in black and um and then too this um in that mib case in in canada uh the person reported that these two beings walking across this uh muddy field and when they went over there to look after the they disappeared on the other side of the field and tried to follow their tracks. There were no tracks, but he had distinctly seen him, you know, walking Perfect. across this yeah. field. Yeah. You know, weird things that, uh, and of course some of it gets just too weird for some researchers. So they, <laughs> they just <laughs> choose to ignore it entirely. But, and, uh, and again, it sort of, it sort of suggests an altered state of consciousness. Oh yeah. Yeah, it does. And, um, uh, you know, it's 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 very real to them. There was uh, there was a mm -hmm. case I think it was in Australia where uh, two researchers went out with this um, to this site where this woman had claimed she had an encounter, and suddenly she was uh, seeing the craft. It landed. It was the beam got out and was communicating with her, and these two researchers were there watching her. They didn't see anything. Uh, yeah, they saw her like she was talking to somebody and like she was having experience. But, uh, um, so, you know, um, and then you have cases where people are, some people are seeing something and other people present don't see it. Um, it even happened to the late great Swiss psychologist, Carl Jung. He was, um, you know, he used to go to seances, and he was telling about one time there was a, a medium and these four people were seeing this moon-shaped object hovering over the guy's abdomen and they couldn't understand why, you know, Carl Jung couldn't see what they were seeing. They were quite surprised and shocked because it was so plain to them, the four of them. And uh, Jung said, I can't really explain this but i'm wondering if this has some connection to these ufo reports hmm. and, and he called it uh psychoid and uh it indicated like there was some kind of interaction going on at some level that uh wasn't quite matter and it wasn't but you know there was some kind of mind matter link there was something in between um if that's not murky enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as I've told you, I've had a couple of experiences like that, but I, uh, when I say altered state too, I don't mean that it's not real. I think 
that an altered state might be more individualist, um, where someone can connect to something that only they're connecting to, but it doesn't make it not real. It's just not shared. Right. And, and I, but I figured that's what you were referring to, but I, I just wanted to, you know, mention these, these aspects and the complexity and puzzle puzzling aspects of it. To, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're trying to talk intelligently about things that are just, uh, so strange. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. it's hard to, uh, get a foothold in it you know i mean everybody's looking for the theory of everything that will put everything into its proper context uh science demands everything be in precise and concise terms and definitions you know and uh with this stuff you just sort of you're grasping at little bits and pieces trying to connect the dots as best you can and uh, it's almost like it uh, it's putting things out there in a trickster type way. It's to it wants you to maybe think about it, ponder it, but it's also kind of kind of showing you how it can confuse you and and uh, um, well, it confuses us. I mean, maybe it, the point <laughs> is that we we don't fully we need to study these things more closely and and try to catch up um, with what is going on it's it's certainly beyond our present level of uh, our present ability to understand it yeah but, um, we have to keep in the process we have to continue to uh, ask the questions and pursue the evidence trail uh, not not necessarily where we want to go but where the evidence leads us not our not our um, desire for confirmation of our beliefs yeah yeah um you 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 talk (laughs) talking about beliefs you talk about the connection here to uh with the ufo and this other weird phenomena to religious apparitions and i never really thought about it too much until i had read valet's dimensions where he starts comparing those those two things yeah um yeah the um you know keel and and valley belay both they had uh, in in their writings, uh, looked at a lot of the Marian apparitions and how they were uh, a lot of similarities between the UFO contact experience and uh, and even with the the Fatima events there, October thirteenth, nineteen seventeen, with the, uh, those child visionaries who predicted that that date there would be. Um, uh, something that uh, would be given as proof to the the populace, because you know, for quite some time, they they were being ridiculed, and people were, you know, they were even locked up at one time for. Uh, I think the the Catholic Church felt that they were uh, getting too much attention, and yeah. and such, and and and. They, they had doubts, and yet people gathered at this place where they would gather on the date, even though they were in, in jail and had some weird experiences. But the biggie was the Dance of the Sun, um, where this big disc came down out of the clouds, and they called it the Dance of the Sun because it was where the, when the clouds parted, that's where the, they first saw the sun, and then there was this, this spinning disc and all these colors and and there was a heat wave and and it just rained torrential rain and suddenly the clouds part and in no time 
the people's clothes, the ground were dry, and uh, and there were supposedly seventy thousand people gathered. Some have questioned, well, maybe there was thirty, maybe there was forty thousand instead. But uh, irregardless, there was a lot of people there. You know, yeah. who witnessed some things. The 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 object made some of the classic flying saucer maneuvers. I think the I think they like the fallen leaf motion, and then there was the uh, angel's hair type things that's been associated with these reports in different places. And even years afterwards at that site and other sites, there were similar miracles that continue to happen, you know, in that region. And uh, even right there where um, in Fatima, there was a angel's hair photograph that was uh, from 1957. Um, and, you know, they... Some researchers have associated angel's hair, uh, this this cob, cobwebby stuff with, you know, that evaporates on the touch. Say if someone tries to grab it and it just evaporates in their hands as, as being just spider webs and probably a good measure of it is. Some of it, it's, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, it's yeah. associated with some pretty <laughs> strange things. Um but uh, well, and and the kids of Fatima too. They they at one point were observed communicating with the the Marian apparition, but no one else saw anything. Isn't that right? So kind of like what we were just talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. That that's happened not only in Fatima, but in other cases with young children, and then uh, and then at other times, other people for some reason did see things. But uh, a lot of times when they were. Um, there were other groups of people around and they would be in a trance type state. And, and they even mentioned how, um, how they didn't know how they could be like in this paralyzed, uh, motionless state for so long as children. And they were communicating with an unseen being that the people couldn't see. And, and, uh, you know, how, uh, uh, there were even, there was in another country where this was going on. I can't remember. I think it was, uh, Spain or someplace in the 60s and and the children were even like running backwards and mm. uh, and and they would have a certain posture where they would be bent bent over you know looking up at the sky and 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 they would be in this posture position for an hour or so and and you know they'd just uh, like a statue I guess and and uh, and there was there was even cases where they were running barefoot over rocks and things and and uh, there was no evidence of you know anybody else tried that they said they that they'd had their their feet cut up you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course there were miracles of, of people reporting healings and other people seeing apparitions and sometimes as these these lights uh, my friend Greg little said the most impressive to him, cases was um, Zaiton outside of Cairo, Egypt, uh, where there was a, a church there from from like 1968 to 1970, had thousands of people who saw, photographed, and filmed um, appearances of the Marian apparition on top of this church. And, uh, and then there were also uh, these large doves or whatever. They felt they were doves, but they were very large and uh, sometimes just orbs like flying around. Hmm. I remember seeing one photograph where there was these these lights and they were in the shape of a cross. And uh, and uh, while he was he and his wife uh, 
Laura, they were over there a few years ago, and he said they, they went to the church, and they actually talked to some of the witnesses. And He feels it's um, some of these Marian apparition cases are some of the best evidence that we have. I know Valet wrote that um, that was one of the best witnessed UFO events was, was Fatima, because there were yeah. an estimated 70,000 people, you know. I mean, we've had some impressive multi-witness UFO cases over the years, but uh, if 70,000 is correct, that's that's one of the most impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned the falling leaf motion, and that's one of the things that Eric Ouellette talks about in relation to it being like a poltergeist encounter, because apparently um, at ports, you know, when rocks or something will suddenly appear, uh, sometimes demonstrate that same falling leaf motion um, as they're falling to the ground. Hmm. You know, I I haven't heard that. That's interesting. Huh. So that that was one of the things that led him to connect, I think, the the two different things because he was seeing similar phenomena uh, or similar behaviors between the phenomena, even though they seemed to be very different things. Yeah. I think even Dr. Hynek once, uh, I think in the mid-'70s, I think it might have been in uh, when him and, Va- him and Valet, Valet sat, sat down, um, and uh you know talked and then they they talked with some other people too about these different ideas and concepts and they they put it all together in a book uh, called on the edge of reality back in 1975 Mm -hmm. and uh i believe it's in there that heineck made the remark that uh some of these incidents of cars being followed down the roads by you know strange lights kind of reminded him of poltergeist type phenomena that's interesting and 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 it's kind of like you know the um reports of uh quite a number of reports uh i know keel wrote about one there in the point pleasant area in 60 in the 60s that involved a young couple who were in a lover's lane type place and uh the UFO come down or something, and they afterwards they had burns on their body bodies. Yeah. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of lot of stories of of people out there, long lone young couples on on these uh, deserted country roads encountering some strange <laughs> strange things. Yeah. And 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 again, that that leads me to wonder, like you know, you. Uh, you're stir- they're obviously doing what they're doing. It's stirring up a lot of sexual energy, and if that's something that this thing, these things are drawn to, or that are help creating these things, is that that sort of energy? Yeah, I know uh, one guy uh, um, told me, kind of surprised me. He was telling me about he was uh, when he was younger, he was out uh, with this girl, and they were in the back seat, and uh, he said a a light. A uh, ball of light came through the uh, the back window and went through his body and mm. out the other side, apparently. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> but uh, no telling how many stories like this. Um, hmm. There's um, there's a there's a book for you, UFOs and Lovers Lane. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and but it's not just UFOs; it's monster sightings too. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, there have been a bunch of those, 
and uh, so it's um, it's the yeah. energies. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk. Uh, we have a few more minutes here. Let's talk about Shag Harbor. I don't know if I've ever even talked about Shag Harbor much on this show before. Uh, but you have a is it a whole chapter on it? Well, I, I delved quite a bit into it. Uh, yeah. You know, there was there was a um, barum cloud experiment uh, that that night uh, was launched from uh, Wallops Island, Virginia, and this was one of those uh, things that generated some some UFO stuff. And I mean, I had looked it up again because. I was living in Hullville, Maine, and, and up on a hill there, and, and uh, I know myself and others in, in the neighborhood, um, October 4th of 1967, you know, and I just, I hadn't been too many months into the UFO thing when this happened, and there were these different colored clouds off to the south, and I thought, man, could it really be that we're about to have a visitation, that this is, you know, the big event is finally here, you know, mm-hmm. and uh and then the next day, the, the paper said it was, uh, you know, this barum cloud experiment. And in John Keel's Operation Trojan was, he describes, um, it seemed like these lights were following him, and he, he pulled over on Long Island. It was the very same night, October 4th, 1967, and, and close to the same time uh, that he had written there. And uh, and he doesn't really say much more. It says somebody asked him, you know, uh, well, what do you think they are? And Keel wrote, you know, I don't have any idea and walked off, you know, and, and just chucked. But then later in in his newsletter, Anomaly, I think a couple of years later, uh, a couple of years or so, he, he did quite a quite a detailed article about how these barum cloud experiments that, uh, you know, launched from Wallops Island or other sites um, to study the atmosphere that these uh NASA and such have been launching into the atmosphere for a number of years. It had generated a number of UFO flaps. And he doesn't mention that he might have been, you know, <laughs> the victim of one of the sightings. But mm. uh, it seems to me like, you know, that he was because it was that night. But then again, the you know, then there's the uh, Shag Harbor thing. Now, that was, that was later that same night. It was hours later and there were sightings of something up there and this big dark cylinder came down um off the coast of shag harbor nova scotia there was a number of witnesses that saw it it was on the surface and then it sank below the surface and uh presumably was out there for for a time and it came to rest near uh, some sort of magnetic sensor or something for some top secret security military operation and i thought hmm and somebody had told uh the author of this book doc object that was written about this case that it was um he he, he'd been in the military and he said that it had been tracked by norad coming from over siberia making a semi orbital shot and then coming down um there at shag harbor and uh and so i you know i didn't find i didn't know of any references to any more barum cloud experiments that we had uh i did kind of wonder if maybe um this this might have been a a soviet thing you know (laughs) that they fired something because they detected something in the atmosphere and mistook it for something 
that we were doing that maybe, uh, I don't know, but anyway, uh, there was a report that a Soviet submarine was there shortly afterwards monitoring our investigation of this. And then there was supposed to have been another object, and it joined this other object that was under there, and then the two anomalies drifted off off the coast of Maine, and eventually something was seen flying out from the ocean, and they think it was these, maybe, the authors thought maybe it was these two objects. Um, and I wrote to one of the people, they have a annual festival now uh, for this event, and I wrote to one of the people over it, and they had never thought of the uh, barum cloud thing. Uh, but uh, I think there was uh, an airline report that they had up in Canada that was, I think, the timing of what they saw in the description was probably the barren cloud. But the other sightings, they were, you know, pretty strange. Um, yeah. And, uh, hey, maybe <laughs> maybe uh, the whatever's operating behind the UFO intelligence there, maybe it was curious about what we were up to and came in to <laughs> take a closer look. Who knows? But... Uh, Weren't uh, there some men in black connections there too? Oh, well, there was a, you know, there was in Keel's writings, I think it was in Mothman Prophecies, he wrote about a um, uh, a woman out in Minnesota where there had been a lot of UFO activity and telling about this strange guy who by the name of, if, if I recall correctly, was Richard French. And... Uh, you know, Keel just thought it was another one of those mystery men. He he uh, he asked the woman he was having an upset stomach, and she recommended some Jello, mm. and uh, she presented him with a bowl of Jello, and uh, he uh, didn't seem to know what to do with it. Uh, you know, acting right. very peculiar. And uh, there was actually a case that Valley documented another case out in California involving a guy in a restaurant who didn't know how to can't count change and who uh, acted very peculiar and uh, didn't know what to do with Jello as well. So that's that I included that in there. But uh, it seems that during these uh, disclosure meetings in Washington, there was a guy from the Air Force named Richard French who said he'd been like a disinformation agent for the Air Force. Mm. And so, I mean, it had the same name as the guy from Minnesota. And he also claimed that up in, um, back in the 1950s, as I recall, that he had witnessed uh, craft underwater and, and alien activity. Uh, but it wasn't Nova Scotia. It was further up the coast from there. But, uh, and it was a, a different time frame. But um, anyway, uh, someone had speculated that, uh, Perhaps uh, he truly was a, a disinformation agent for the military, like he claimed, and uh, maybe he was the guy out in Minnesota, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, well, we yeah. We certainly know that the military has, has played games like that, you know, trying to, to make witnesses look ridiculous and, and all kinds of stuff like that for whatever reason. Yeah, there's... Uh, you know, the case that uh, was quite well known a few decades back that um, Nick Redfern wrote, uh, I think, a book on um, about this scientist out in near Albuquerque, New Mexico, who was getting some kind of um, radio transmissions and uh, that were quite strange to him. And he thought maybe it was aliens. And uh, instead of admitting what, what it was about, the government kind of apparently played him, you know. And oh, yeah. 
let him think uh, that you know he was onto something and fed him some false information, mm-hmm. and uh, just so that you know to create a kind of a curtain of laughter so that people didn't really know that this was something they were working on, that this was coded signals of some kind of project they had going and they didn't want anybody to know the real deal. Um, But, um, and of course we know that, you know, there've been aircraft that have been flown and tested and, and they, you know, the military rather have let us know that it was, uh, to, to, you know, suggest it was UFOs as opposed to knowing um, that it was really one of ours and it was, you know, on some secret mission or else it was something we were they were testing and they, they didn't want any more serious attention brought to it. So why not let people think it was a UFO? It wasn't going to get, yeah. you know, taken that seriously. <laughs> what, what I was amused at is that, uh, like it was last year maybe, uh, they had admitted that a bunch of the UFO sightings in the 1950s were this high-altitude plane they were testing. And they very specifically said it, it only accounted for sightings by air, or airplane pilots above a certain uh, height uh, because they would be the only ones who could have seen it, but they saw something flying higher than they thought You know, we had the technology to fly, so it got reported as UFO. And the news accounts were like, Oh, you know, U.S. military takes, you know, says all UFO fighting sightings are now explained. And, you know, it was just them and all this other stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's not what they said at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm just waiting to see how this uh, this whole thing works out, you know, with the Nimitz and everything. And, and um, yeah, I feel like that's that's more just like noise into the mix. Yeah, because they're you know they're um, they're taking a whole kind of a different track to it. You know, it's in a way it's uh, now they're admitting to some to it, but then they're not saying. But we're not saying it's extraterrestrial. It could be some other government doing this. You know, um, <laughs> or it could be our own government doing this. <laughs> ah, yes, yes, yeah. Um, I mean but, that that uh, is that is exactly what happened in the 1950s. They used UFO you know reports to cover up the fact that we had technology that could fly that high. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so who knows what they have now yeah the only the only thing because that you know otherwise is that uh the high strangeness things um that's going on uh has been going on for a very long time i mean this this oh, yeah. is not a a new phenomenon it was back before we had the <laughs> had any kind of technology that could be mistaken oh yeah definitely uh, yeah but uh yeah, I, I have no doubt there's a real phenomena. I don't know what that phenomena is, but I mean we can we can track back as long as recorded history of, you know, people having what we would call Bigfoot, UFO encounters, etc. Uh they may call them different things, they may think they're different things, but the, the overall pattern is the same. So I have no I, no doubt that the phenomena has been interacting with people or has been presented by people, uh unconsciously, you know, one way or the other or both. Uh, throughout history, it's just uh, you know sometimes the government uses it to to cover up what they're doing. Right, it's it's like uh, you know Timothy Renner's uh, book there on 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 the Pennsylvania Bigfoot. The they were called like back in the eighteen twenties and so on. These early reports, where they were, yeah, gorillas, the wild man, you know, and and yep. they they were um, that was the 
frame of reference that seemed to account for it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the best they could do at the time. And like like today, uh, someone sees something, and uh, I, have, I know twice uh, I've investigated two situations here in Tennessee where there was a Bigfoot outbreak, and uh, the local citizens, uh, you know, come up with their rifles and try to track it down. And then after a few days, everything returns back to normal. It's over. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting how things like that happen at flaps, too. Mm-hmm, yeah. But then it's interesting, too, how... You know, even though it comes and goes like it does, that, that certain areas seem to have recurrent um, phases where this this yeah. activity will erupt like it does, and um, people may report um, these strange creatures that are killing their livestock, and then mm-hmm. uh, you know seems to have quite an appetite, and then all of a sudden it's just it's over, and no one ever figures out what it was. Yeah, and that's that's the especially weird ones when you have the, you know, livestock being killed and such because this is not just someone seeing something. This is something that's having a very physical and in this case to the animals deadly effect. Mhm. Yeah. It's uh and uh you know, there's you could write a book on that, uh that alone. Of course, Keel when he wrote Strange Creatures from Time and Space, that was a lot of the stories that he included uh, in there. And, uh, uh, of course, when he was growing up in up around Perry, New York, uh, back when, I guess, the 19, about, about 1940, because uh, he was, I think, only 10, and he uh, said that there were people reporting a gorilla uh, mm-hmm. nearby crossing um, the little country road by a farm and once again the people you know went out with their rifles to try to kill the thing and uh and then pretty soon it was all over and yeah. of course when he got involved in his studies in the 1960s and all he realized ah um that was probably one of them <laughs> <laughs> and, th- and then there's like cattle mutilations and in some cases you can look at it and say this seems to have a human aspect. And then you have some of the really strange cases where you're like, I I don't even know what to make of that. And why would there be two different things causing this? Yeah. um, Valet got, you know, pretty, pretty into the the mutilation thing. Uh, A lot of them like the UFOs. I mean, it's, they, they do have explanations and then some that's just seem to be quite, uh, quite puzzling and, and we can't figure out what it was. Um, and, and it's one of those things where if you only look at it from a certain angle, you're like, oh, no, this has an explanation. But then when you include all the data, it's just, it's outright puzzling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people um, that think a lot of things have been explained that, that haven't, you know. They, they assume that uh, all the crop circles uh, mm-hmm. have uh, been explained, uh, that Uri Geller has been explained. Uh, right. You know, um, lots and lots, but, uh, you know, well, uh, and I think, I think in the case of someone like Yuri Geller, he's, he's a showman as well, you know? So if you're going to mm-hmm. go on a national stage, you're probably going to use sleight of hand rather than any kind of psychic ability because you need it to work. Yeah. I know that, um, you know, someone questioned, uh, like the, the government, the CIA's Stanford Research Institute, their, their deep involvement in it. And, uh, 
I think it was Christopher Green that said, "Oh, yeah, we know that he can. He uh, he will attempt sometimes to do sleight of hand." They said we mm-hmm. caught him at it. It was very clumsy. Uh, what we've seen him do, <laughs> what we've seen him do, was was things that. Uh, Absolutely, there was no explanation. We had all these controls in place. Uh, we know that he can do it. It's not a question, you know, but uh, some people want to, of course, dismiss the entire, entire right. effect right. and everything. And then I know I, I, I talked, you know, as many people did with, with Edgar Mitchell. He was, you know, uh, he was taking uh, silverware around with him to uh, test some of these children who would see your Gary Geller on TV, and they'd stop being able to bend the uh, silverware themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I'm interested to find out. I think uh, Timothy uh, Renner was recently describing how he was at a uh, spoon bending party or something just recently, where uh, really? observed. observed uh, I'll have to when I get to talk with him. I got to ask him about that. But I heard him on some interview that he was he was doing i'll have Uh, to ask him about it yeah yeah i'm sure it was him and he was with some of his friends and uh, they had some i think it was some woman that was supposed to be pretty psychic and uh uh helped to uh to produce some of these effects with them so yeah i would love to see that i know i i went into a an editor's office in New York City one time. He was uh, editor of uh, Beyond UFOs and let's see, no UFO update and uh, Beyond Reality. And uh, he was telling me that Uri Geller showed up in his office one day, and I think it was like pins started popping off a bulletin board, and <laughs> something on his desk moved. And he said there was no way that Geller could have. Um, prepared for that this was the first time he'd ever been in my office he said right. uh, you know there was no time to set up uh uh you know some kind of magic effects <laughs> <laughs> all right well we are out of time i thank you for coming back for this third part the book the latest book you have is john a keel the man the myths and the ongoing mysteries you are brent rains and your website is what it's apmagazine.info, and the All magazine, right. of course, is Alternate Perceptions. And and thank you very much uh, for having me on your show. Oh, anytime. That's right. I appreciate it. And very enjoyable, and I enjoy the uh, – glad you did the interview with me. Oh, yeah. Uh, while back, which is in the December issue of Alternate Perceptions now. I want to thank all of our Patreons, without whom this show may not even be possible. And I particularly want to give a shout-out to those pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Eric Hervin, Lindsay Marie Trebet, Super Inframan, Tim, Rob Drummond, Alex Whitcomb, Edu Kamahort, Elliot Keegan, Janet Bunderson, 36 Dingo, Maria, Jennifer Campbell, American Rambler, Kevin, John Rutledge Foster, Eric Citron, Andy McNamara, Sasha Yorg, Matthias Sumby, Dominic O'Malley, Christopher Vaughn, Riker and Stark, Sean Cosgrove, Jose A., Roger Gonzalez, Craig Cicernos, Ray Benedetto, Lindsay Jackson K., Alfred Tuttle, Kevin Shrek, Patricia Gaia William Lovelace, Mark Brady, Chris is a hot dog a sandwich, and Carla Mahoney. Thank you all so very much. All right, there's an extra Patreon segment with Brent. 
as we discuss the nature of time, as well as the uh, as well as the commonality of anomalous lights in this phenomena. So that'll be up later in the week for Patreons. And uh, to take you out tonight, we're going to hear some Whirring World from Psyche Corporation. See you next time. Come in. Do you need me? Do you understand the numbers pouring over your connection? Soaking into our transmission 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.